electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Julia Borston and Carl Quintanilla. Deidre Bosa is off. Today, a broad tech rebound. The Nasdaq up 5% over the last week as growth names like Zoom and Datadog popped double digits off their lows. FinTech, Coinbase, and Affirm up more than 33% in a month. So is the worst behind, worst behind us? We will discuss. Plus, is it is the stock of the morning. More on Netflix and whether it is the end of an era of single-minded spending this hour. And finally, don't think we forgot about Twitter. Former CEO Dick Costello is going to join us this hour to talk Musk, the deal, and more in his first broadcast interview since the news first broke back in April, Julia. Well, we're going to kick off today's feed with Netflix and a new era for streamers. Netflix reported better than expected results, the less bad than anticipated loss of about a million subs in the second quarter, and it laid out where its future will lie, which is a focus more on generating revenue and less on user growth. The two new initiatives that Reed Hastings and Ten Sarandos, the co-CEOs, focused on, generating money from the 100 million people who are watching Netflix but not paying thanks to password sharing and launching a lower-cost ad-supported service early next year. These two things are closely connected. A lower-cost service will give Netflix a better chance at getting those password-borrowing users to start to pay. And lower cost could prevent users from churning out as soon as they finish binging their favorite show. Now, Netflix and all the other streamers are working to figure out how to lock people in and minimize that churn. For Disney, it's by keeping its bundle with Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, and Hulu far less expensive than those, co- those options a la carte. For Warner Brothers Discovery, it's working to combine its assets into a new streaming bundle, which we expect to launch soon. So, John, it all comes down to finding new ways to hold on to cash-strapped consumers. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this for the past few hours and what the real readout is for the whole media ecosystem, Carl. I think maybe the big idea here is the death of a la carte, which to me is different from uh, a rebundling. It's a death of this idea that technology and streaming were going to allow a new kind of media company to target premium content to the home so well that people would just subscribe, advertising would be unnecessary, and theaters and windowing would be unnecessary too. We've seen both things crumble, right, uh, this year. Top Gun Maverick in the theaters, boy, doing great. You know, um, good thing that wasn't just in the home. The, the Minions movie in the theaters, doing great, right? While, while Pixar not doing as great because uh, a, a little bit more of that focus on the a la carte streaming option. And then at the same time, Netflix moving toward advertising, chasing that revenue. I, I wonder where it goes from here and how many business models have to adjust since that a la carte dream is gone. 
Uh, it depends on how much you want to rely on consistency. I mean, uh, putting all your uh, cards on the likelihood of a top gun happening, Julia, is not easy. Uh, it's a lot more easier to have an annuity business where you get that sub and advertising revenue. Uh, but even with the strength of Stranger Things, they still ended up with this, uh, this relative weakness on subs, at least in North America and U.S. and Canada. And that, to some, is what it was the real big red flag of the quarter. Yeah, but what's interesting is that Netflix outperformed for Q2, losing only about 1 million instead of 2 million subs, but its guidance for Q1 gains was less than expected, you know, saying that they expect to add 1 million subs in Q3 rather than the 1.8 million that analysts expected. But ultimately, guys, this is all about Netflix refashioning itself into more of a traditional media company. For so long, it's been valued as a tech giant, expected to grow like a tech giant, and now we're seeing more of that media company angle. Well, We're going to continue need... to talk about this with our next guest. Oh, sorry, Don. <laughs> well, maybe maybe this question can wait, but does it need a more traditional library and a theme park then? Seems like you need a theme park. Oh, well, that's totally a different business, although <laughs> perhaps uh, per perhaps we'll see if the theme park business, business continues to be um, something that is resilient during the recession. It certainly seems, uh, or a recession, it certainly seems to be um, the case for for both uh, Disney and for NBC Universal because those numbers have been holding up. Um, but getting into the theme park business as a whole nother whole nother uh, a ball of, ball of wax, as they say. So moving on and bringing in another voice on this, our next guest is still bullish on Netflix, saying shares could head to two hundred and seventy dollars per share, or more than thirty percent higher from here. Let's bring in City Research Analyst Jason Bazinet. Jason, you cover the whole media space. I want to get your take on Netflix, but let's start off with your big picture. What do these results mean for the rest of the sector? Well, these results, I mean, I think you framed it accurately. They were um, better than feared. Um, I think the big thing, um, and, and in a weird way, the trouble for the stock in the near term is right now Netflix is a bit of an orphan stock and that the growth investors aren't really animated about it because there are no net ads and the value investors aren't animated about it because there isn't enough free cash flow to justify the valuation. So it's sort of stuck. The key is to launch that ad-based tier, as you guys talked about, which is happening next year. I think that has the potential to sort of help both in both potential constituents, growth and value, potentially get interested in the stock. What was interesting about that earnings call last night is they kept on stressing, emphasizing that the ad business is going to evolve over time. It's not going to launch fully formed out of the gate and that that consumers and investors should expect that to be sort of early days and the service will get better and better. Is that a warning? Uh, and how concerned are you that that ad business will be years before it starts to generate meaningful revenue? Well, yeah, I mean, Netflix has a long history of, of sort of testing, learning, adjusting. Um, and so at some level, I don't think it should come as a surprise that they're going to go um, slowly. Uh, I would suspect that they probably launch the ad base tier outside the U.S. just because the stakes are a little bit lower. We all know that the U.S. is the biggest ad market by far. So almost by definition, it'll be gradual. I don't think it's a warning, though. Um, you know, as, as, as indifferent as investors are today on Netflix's shares, you'd be hard pressed to find someone... On the, on the institutional side that is bearish on the ad tier. We're really just arguing about timing, right? It's not, it's not the magnitude. It's the right strategy. They, they, I'm glad that they're doing it. It's a good thing to do. It will help subs, it will help revenue, it will help cash flow.
So that's interesting. If, if we agree that it's a matter of timing, not, not if, and if we agree that the sub-guidance, at least near term, uh, was better than expected, does that mean that we can prevent a return to 162? I, I sure hope so. Um, you know, the, the, the risk is, is uh, you know, what happens in a recession, right? I mean, do, do we end up sort of retrenching on these sub-numbers? I can tell you, you know, years and years ago, I used to cover the, um, the telco stocks. And, and during the 0809 crisis, I was terrified that everyone was going to accelerate terminating their landline voice subscription. Right? That cost 50 or $60. I thought for sure that was going to happen. I mean, the S&P was sub 700. Everyone was underwater on their mortgage. The unemployment rate was high. Why wouldn't consumers go save 50 bucks on a landline that they didn't even use? We didn't see landline cord cutting accelerate during the great financial crisis. So I'm guardedly optimistic that, that the sub numbers out of Netflix and a lot of these other streamers are going to hold up reasonably well, even if we enter a recession. Yeah, Jason, but I guess people don't churn out of their landlines when, uh, when they stop calling relatives as often? I don't know what the equivalent of, of stranger things in the slate is. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's worse, though, because, I mean, you could argue that the landline had no functional use in the era of mobile phone. It was like a free way to save 600 bucks a year. Yeah. <laughs> this, at least, people use it. I mean, uh, so, I, you know, it was almost I, like a deadweight loss subscribing to a landline. Go ahead. I wonder, though, um, how, how much internal change do you think Netflix has to do uh, to be built for the next era it needs to operate in. It seems like the, today's Netflix is structured for streaming, for a la carte subscriptions, not for ads, not for monetizing IP that they don't necessarily have contracts to monetize in everywhere that they'd like, uh, in, including ads and, hey, theme parks, things like that. Uh, how much work would have to be done to either rework their existing agreements or get new agreements that are structured the way they need? Yeah, a fair amount. You know, I, I've got this old adage in my seat. It says, if you think that a management team was pursuing a certain set of strategies historically because they were idiots, then you have the wrong investment thesis, right? I, I, and so my point is, is that for a long time, people viewed Netflix as this disruptor. Everything that Netflix did was right. Everything that traditional media did was wrong. That's a bad thesis, right? At the end of the day, traditional media do all the things that they do, whether it's windows, sell ads, put movies in theaters, all that stuff. Why? Because it generates more revenue and more cash flow, right? You're, you're segmenting the marketplace. You're capturing all of the, all of the um, revenue underneath that demand curve. And so it's going to take an adjustment on the part of Netflix to pivot from this dis disruptor that burns cash flow and everyone measures the stock on net ads. They're going to grow up and become something that's closer to a traditional media company. But that should be something that investors applaud because it's the rational thing that will generate the most cash flow for the assets that they do have. Yeah, it's so interesting. As Netflix pivots to become more of a traditional media company and is valued as such, the, the environment, the whole market has changed so much since those early days when Netflix was growing so quickly because now you have all of these other players competing head to head. Because yeah. we are seeing this Disney push towards their bundle, because we are going to see this Warner Brothers Discovery bundle, uh, we could see more bundling of all of these other services. How do you think that's going to impact Netflix's strategy? And how do you think that's going to impact how many of these subscriptions consumers actually end up having a year from now? Well, so it's I'm going to quibble with your phrase that you used a la carte, because, you know, one of the things that we've learned in the media industry is, is you never want to give the consumer price visibility. So in the old linear world, you didn't want to say, hey, how much would you pay for CNBC? How much would you pay for CNN? You just said, hey, look, here's a pay TV package. It's everything under the bundle or you get no pay TV. What, what the streamers are all trying to do is essentially create a synthetic bundle by putting enough IP under one unified app 
that it's essentially creating the bundle again. It's just not quite as big of a bundle, but it's still a big bundle. Why? You don't want the consumer to know exactly what Stranger Things, how much value they ascribe to Stranger Things. It's either you get Netflix or you don't. And so I think what's slowly going to happen in this space is you're going to see fewer apps ultimately, and you're going to end up with bigger bundles, right? And, and so I wouldn't call that a la carte. You know, buying, buying an individual show is a la carte. Buying a big array of thousands and thousands of movies and shows under a single app, I would call it linear TV 2.0. Yeah, I agree. A la carte is a myth. It's all about these little different streaming bundles. Yeah. Jason Bazinet from City, can, thank you sorry. so much for joining us. Absolutely. Yes. No, I was just going to say one other thing that I think is super interesting. If you do the math on what a consumer pays for Netflix streaming, it's about a half a cent a minute. That's about half of what they pay for linear TV. So how many apps are they going to have, which I didn't answer that question. They can have a lot of them because streaming is still cheap, about half as cheap as linear. Rel relatively inexpensive. Jason, thanks so yes, much. You bet. Meantime, NASDAQ showing some signs of life this week. The index is up almost 7% since the beginning of July, rebounding off the relative lows, back above the 50-day moving average for the first time since April. Mike Santoli. Yeah, Carl, starting to get a little bit of a chase look here uh, as it goes higher and clicking off maybe some of the little checkpoints that say uh, that this rally has a little more behind it than prior bounces. Take a look at a one-year of the NASDAQ 100, and you'll see both the pretty clear short-term break higher as well, of course, as that very daunting uh, kind of downtrend that we're fighting. So you see here there's been a series of, of higher lows. We have not kind of retraced back to that mid-June low. And what we've done is uh, both in the broader market and here with the NASDAQ 100 is everyone was looking at this peak from April and the downturn into June, and we've broken above that. So obviously, uh, definitely progress. Doesn't mean it's obviously over uh, this, this downturn. But it does show you there's a little more sponsorship. The market was a little bit more sold out at the lows, very defensive positioning, and the growth story has a little traction here. Yes, short covering is a part of it. Short covering is a part of every fleeting bounce as well as real bottoms. So it's not uh, so much as uh, saying that, therefore, you can dismiss what's going on. Some of the breakdowns of what's worked uh, over the last month plus since that June 16th low. Take a look here. Apple, among the real big uh, index heavyweights, Apple has been the standout. It's still up 13% right here. Uh, the ARC funds, by the way, still 60% off ARC's high. Uh, so you're seeing in there much more counter-trend type moves. Similarly with cloud, uh, cloud sector still down 50% from its high. This is the equal weighted uh, NASDAQ 100. So it basically shows you the typical large growth stock, large NASDAQ stock, has had a nice move, but nothing compared to some of the higher beta and also uh, that rush into uh, Apple, guys. All right. Mike Santoli, thank you. Meanwhile, Elon Musk losing his first court battle with Twitter, but potentially walking away with billions in cash. Former CEO Dick Costello is going to join us to discuss in his first broadcast interview since it all started. That's next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Time now for a gut check. Bank of America downgrading a trio of names across networking and cybersecurity. Juniper, Arista, and F5 as they brace for deteriorating order trends, supply chain challenges, and a spending slowdown across the space. Taking the other side, Needham still sees value in Arista, upgrading the stock from hold to buy just yesterday, saying they're bullish on the company's cloud growth and gains in enterprise software, calling it one of their best protected networking names against the current macro environment call. John, let's turn to Twitter this morning. The company's trial against Elon Musk formally set now for October following that court hearing in Delaware. On the heels of the decision, our next guest is finally ready to break his silence, having made no comments on the saga since Musk first made the bid for the platform back in April. Joining us at the NYSC this morning to discuss, former Twitter CEO Dick Costolo is here, and it's great to have you, Dick. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, great to be here. Great um, to be back here. First, just a, a comment on the hearing that we got. Yeah. It's early days, obviously, but there's a general yeah. sense that uh, better to win the coin toss than lose it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean... Like most people, I think I learned, learned the word chancery about 48 hours ago, so I'm by no means an expert in Delaware chancery court. Um, but it seems to be in Twitter's favor, you know, hard, hard to know. Although there are a bunch of hedge funds that have taken a long position here, one of the previous guests from Pentwater, that seem to believe, based on their knowledge of chancery court, that Twitter's got the best case here. Right. What is your sense about it, whether Twitter is being well advised at this point and how the board has reacted going all the way back to uh, the initial offer. I mean, you know, the, the board has to do what's in the best fiduciary interest of the, of the company. So the fact that they're pursuing this uh, legal strategy doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I think Brett Taylor has been, well, the chairman of the board has been uh, pretty level-headed and great. And Brett's a great human being, so I wouldn't expect anything else from him. Um, it sort of seems like Dick. the likely outcome here, irrespective of the initial decision, is that Elon ends up being, you know, needing to pay a breakup fee, it, uh, ignoring whatever the initial decision from the Chancery Court is. So, Dick, looking at what this means for for Twitter over the long run, how disruptive has this whole process been to the company, based on your experience having been there for so many years? And how can you yeah. move on from this, no matter what happens? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm smiling because Twitter, Twitter's a hard enough company to run, uh, you know, on a regular day-to-day -day basis. You have a product that everyone who uses it is pretty addicted to and has a very strong opinion about the changes that need to be made to it to make it better. And then you've got a first-time CEO in Parag who's been CEO for a, a couple months, and then this happens. Um, and ramps everything up, you know, uh, a 10x from, from the normal uh, noise volume. So it's been uh, extraordinary challenging for the team there. I would say that 
The thing that Twitter has going for it in this case is it's got a particularly resilient management team around Parag. So you have Ned Siegel as CFO, Leslie Berlin in the marketing role, Avidja Gade, who's been a general counsel through. I'm laughing again because she's been, she's been through everything. Uh, she's had everything thrown at her. And those people have, have seen it all. So having that team around Parag to be able to you know, help him through this, if you will, and they're all enthusiastic, generally optimistic, good-natured people. I think if you were you know, someone who came into the role a particularly stressed out person, you might have gone into coronary arrest sometime around Memorial Day. Yeah, certainly a high, a high pressure, high tension environment. But it sounds like you think there's no chance that Musk ends up buying this company. If that's the case, do you think that Twitter needs to implement some of the changes that Musk has talked about? I mean, I know a lot of people were really excited to see what a Twitter under Musk would look like before things kind of deteriorated. Yeah, no, I'm not saying there's no chance. I'm just saying it seems like the likely outcome, irrespective of the initial decision, is this ends up in some sort of, you have to pay this breakup fee, and then we'll see whether that actually happens or not. Uh, so I, I don't know what the court's going to decide. It sounds like most of the hedge funds think that the court's going to decide he needs to go through the transaction. Um, I do believe, and I think this, people inside the company know this, the company has to expand its footprint beyond the advertising model in some way. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean it's a user subscription base. It could be something like a Bloomberg-esque feed that you know uh, hedge funds, banks, others license in order to find out what's happening in real time and get some sort of information advantage over you know over the uh, uh, others or competitors or the retail investor. Could be a, could be a number of things. We last launched the new line of business, the data stream business, um, licensing the Twitter data feed. I think in. 2014. So it's been a while since there's been a new revenue line there. I think, and I think that everyone inside the company would tell you they need to do that. Dick, um, take Twitter to the psychiatrist's couch with me, if you will. <laughs> What's with the company's kind of weird codependent need for huge personalities that eventually reject it? Whether it's the founders <laughs> who have all found something else to do and apparently don't care about Twitter anymore, and now Elon Musk. Um, it attracts an you attract an extraordinary amount of attention on the platform. I mean, look, we call them followers. When someone follows you, it makes you feel, you know, I have this many followers. It doesn't necessarily mean you're leading them anywhere, but makes you feel that way. And I think, I think let, me, let me say this about Elon. You know, there are the people who believe, hey, he's, ju he's, just, he's, a, he's being a troll. And then, are the, of course, the people who believe, look, the guy's created... Um, and grown two of the most amazing businesses in the United States. The interesting thing about the Elon is he's a, he's a different person in private, and this may be overstating things and not totally fair, but he's a different person in private than he is in public. On, in public on Twitter, you see him testing boundaries and poking and, and, and seeing how far he can go with things. And I think a lot of that is, is to, let's, let's just see what reaction I get from this. In private, he, he, he provides extraordinarily, he's a, he's a really careful thinker and gives you um, particularly well thought out answers to questions you may ask, sometimes even beyond the bounds of what you would have thought anybody might have, might have considered in that space. So when you do think about Elon running the company, and I know people inside the company have met with him uh, about this, he, you have to think about there's this different person, Elon the executive is a different person than he is on Twitter. Okay. And now uh, a, a spam type question. When you were running Twitter, did you believe that you had a good handle on what percentage 
of accounts were real people <laughs> and what percentage were not? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, this has been discussed at length, but, um, and there are actually a number of great posts about this out there. When the company files its opinion about the number of spam bots on the platform, there are obviously lots of great bots like the earthquake detection bots, et cetera. Um, when the company files its spam bots report, it's based on statistical analysis that any university statistics professor would tell you is the right way to measure these things on basically a version of something called central limit theorem. So yes, I have every confidence in the world that they're still doing it that way, the way they say they're doing it, and that's what any stats professor would tell you is the right way to do it. Your comments about Elon are, are interesting and, and, and poking and trying to provoke a reaction, but the, the disparaging remarks he's made about the company are now in Wachtell's uh, filings. Yeah. What, what do you think that's about? Well, I, I'm sure that's, I'm sure, I'm sure that his legal team doesn't think that's particularly helpful and has had conversations with them about that. Um, I, I don't know what it's about other than it's not necessarily the case that he's thinking about what this might look like in a legal filing later. He's thinking about what kind of reaction this might provoke. Or again, I think he, in a, lo a lot of cases, sort of tests the boundaries of, you know, what'll happen if I do this? And I, and I honestly couldn't tell you what the psychology is behind that, but it seems to be the case. And it's very different, again, than the answers you get from him in private about things. Um, what do you think the scenario looks like if he is, uh, if they pursue specific performance and he's forced to buy it? Do you think there's a possibility of that? And, and how does that company run? I just think, I, I think there's very little chance that it doesn't get dragged out through appeals or further, you know, there was reports yesterday that he's gonna, that he's gonna counter sue for something else. I, I guess the short answer is, I think that Elon running Twitter might be very, very different than the public perception of Elon running Twitter. In, in a better way? In a, in, a, in, a, in, a probable, in a probably better way. Because of his acumen just, yeah. regarding AI and yeah, Just think of his, his acumen and his executive. He's built these two great companies. I know that in private conversations we've had, he's had with people, He's got enormously, you know, uh, thoughtful remarks to make, just like he does about his other two businesses, where he's been, you can't argue, but that he's been extraordinarily successful and more successful than probably most people thought he would be with those two. Finally, uh, are you owning any shares? Have you bought any shares? Are you trying to play this from a stock I, standpoint? I, I, I'm, I'm an owner, but I haven't been buying or selling in any capacity over the over this. Best to, best to step back and observe. Right. <laughs> Finally, um, give us a, a window uh, into the way in which uh, the alumni are discussing all of this. You, I mean, all the people yeah. you, you worked with at the, during your tenure at Twitter. It's just, it's, it's a lot. You know, I, I guess the, the, the way I would summarize it is, you know, uh, there's, a saying in, there's a saying among the Twitter alumni that's hashtag Twitter. You'll, something crazy will happen or, you know, something crazy will happen to an executive or some... some something crazy will happen on the platform, and you'll ask someone at the company about it, and they'll go, hashtag Twitter, <laughs> and this is peak hashtag Twitter. <laughs> I think everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. It's, uh, it's the story that keeps giving, at least yeah. from a news standpoint. Dick, thank you for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. And sharing your thoughts. Yeah, They're really to valuable you. to viewers. That's Dick Costello. Julia? Peak hashtag Twitter. We're going to have to start using that one. Now, after the break, is Netflix finally cheap here? We'll discuss. Don't go away.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. Here's what's happening at this hour. More signs of a cooling housing market this morning. The National Association of Realtors says existing home sales fell 5.4 percent last month, bigger decline than economists had been forecasting. And inventories of homes for sale registered their first increase in three years. Separately, the Mortgage Bankers Association reports that mortgage applications fell 6.3 percent last week to a 22-year low. Macau to plan to reopen its casinos Saturday as officials unwind the strict COVID-19 measures that had locked down the gambling hub. Macau shut down all its casinos on July 11th. Business is likely to be muted for several weeks as many virus-related restrictions on residents do remain in place. The U.S. Postal Service plans to buy at least 25,000 electric delivery vehicles as it upgrades its fleet. The service expects that at least 50 percent of newly ordered vehicles will be electric and says the so-called next generation vehicle fleet should start servicing postal routes late next year. I wonder if that's still going to attract dogs to chase down those trucks, Julia. (laughs) Uh, 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 a postal service truck is a postal service truck. Thanks so much, Bertha. <laughs> Netflix shares higher today, up about 4.5% after subscriber losses were less bad than feared. But the stock is still the biggest laggard on the S&P year to date. So is the stock cheap here? Our Dom2 has a look at that. Dom? So, Julia, it's always that debate, right? It's all relative based upon what you think a company should be worth and what you're willing to pay for that kind of future stream of profits or earnings. But to kind of put that Netflix move in perspective, at one point this was, again, a $300-plus billion market cap company. If you just go back to the record highs that we saw in the fall of last year, at its peak, again, roughly $306 billion, we'll call it, in terms of overall market cap. But that 70% slide that we've seen since then has shaved a lot off of there. So now we're talking close to like a $93, $94 billion market cap in dollar terms. Now, to put that in some contextual perspective, we often talk about streaming Netflix versus streaming theme parks Disney, right? That comparison's been made for quite some time, especially on Netflix's ascent to those record highs that we saw last year in the wake of the pandemic. So Netflix versus Disney back in, call it mid-November of 2021, that $306 billion market cap topped the $286 billion that Disney was worth at the same time. And then today, though, 
kind of a lot less, right? $93 billion, that market cap. That's, again, just about half of what Disney is worth today. So you can see that kind of big shift streaming a big part of that story. Now, to your point about where the relative valuations are, is it cheap? The reason why that's coming into discussion right now is because some traders and investors are looking at the relative valuation of Netflix over the course of its history. This is a 10-year chart of the forward price-to-earnings ratio on Netflix, so how much you pay in stock price today for next year's worth of expected or estimated earnings coming from Netflix. It's currently sitting just around 19 to 20, that times. Around just five years ago, it was trading around 100 times forward earnings. So it's a fifth of what it was on a valuation basis. But the question then becomes whether or not that kind of descent that we've seen over the course of the last five years is enough to make it compelling. And Carl, that's the reason why some at least bulls on Netflix right now are saying that maybe the carnage has been enough to say that it's cheap looking at a 10 year chart of what it looks like. But of course, future growth is always going to be a big part of that story. Yeah, especially as the competition continues to come at them. Uh, Don, thanks. Dominic Chu. Speaking of Netflix, a CNBC Pro out with a stock screen highlighting what could be the next surprise earnings winner. The criteria greatly lowered expectations for Q2, seen through negative EPS revisions. Big fall in price this year, but rebound in the last month. And finally, a long-term track record of success before falling on recent hard times, or rather, a better 10-year compounded annual return than the S&P. Who fits the bill? Four tech names with very different specialties. Software company Intuit, hardware player Corvo, chipmaker Skyworks, and finally Tesla. John, interesting screen. Uh-huh. Yes. Speaking of Tesla, more on what to expect from results this afternoon is next. But first, check out this move on Bitcoin. Headed higher today by about a percent, I believe. Let me see. More than that. 3% above 24K. Now up more than 25% this month alone. Stay with us. Let's talk about the company Elon Musk actually runs, the source of his wealth. Tesla on deck to report second quarter earnings today with factory shutdowns in China and supply chain constraints. Just some of the challenges in focus. Our next guest, an early Tesla investor, is looking to buy back in but sees the stock falling to $420 a share. Joining us now, Full Cycle founder and managing partner, Ibrahim Al-Husseini. Ibrahim, welcome. I think you're saying you sold your Tesla position uh, when it was at about uh, 1000 bucks a share, around a trillion dollar valuation. Uh, what's Tesla really worth? And what's the price you'd be willing to pay to get back in? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to look at, to see the company back when it was a private company and invested in late 2008, I believe, and sold a big chunk in 2013 and the rest when it reached over a trillion dollars. Uh, partially because uh, I looked at the something unique about that company, which is that 37% of its shareholders are retail investors. And that confluence of, um, I will say, the gamification of investment, plus all that free government capital, uh, plus Elon's constant reach out to these retail investors was booing the stock to such a degree that I thought once the money ran out and the, you know, the image of the infallible Elon Musk starts to wane, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those retail investors will also start realizing that 79 times price to earning ratio is too exuberant. And even though I believe in the company long term, that's just too much for it. And I believe the right price is around 400. So I'm going to wait on the sidelines until I pick it back up at that price. 
Okay, why 400? And put that in light of the challenges that we expect the company to be facing uh, this quarter and for the rest of this year. I mean, why doesn't Tesla get Netflixed, right? Uh, given that there are competitors who, I mean, the, the threat is always competitors are going to get into the space and have success. They haven't really in a significant way yet when it comes to EVs, but they have in streaming, and that eventually has caused a, a re-rating in Netflix. Why won't that happen to Tesla? It will happen to Tesla. I don't know if it'll be crushed to that degree. And even if it does, I'm a long, I'm long-term bullish on Tesla. So even if it goes below 400, um, the I'm happy to hold it again for the long term, like I did, because I see it uh, breaking through the trillion and two trillion dollar mark in the long term. But we're talking about uh, maybe even eight to ten years ahead, and I'm happy to be a long-term holder of the stock. There are 70 models of EVs entering the market, both on the low end and the high end of the market. So the association between Tesla equaling electric vehicles will start to dilute over time as consumers have more options. And as we know, you know their battery division did great, but their solar division, due to capacity constraints, did very, very poorly. And those government uh, subsidies that they sell over in Europe will obviously also diminish over time if you know more manufacturers are producing EVs. So they don't need to buy those government-issued credits anymore from Tesla, which is a big part of their revenue, as you know. Yeah, Ibrahim, looking at uh, the issues of supply and demand, I know this quarter we'll see the impact of the shutdown of the Shanghai assembly plant. And then, of course, on the demand issue, we have this question of how much consumer spending will pull back with a potential recession. How persistent do you see problems that are similar to the Shanghai plant shutdown? And how resilient do you think that the Tesla consumer will be? Um, I'm I'm shaky on the Tesla consumer long term just because the brand is getting a little tarnished. The association of it being uh, a symbol of the future is getting muddled with a lot of the erratic behavior from the founder. Uh, but regarding supply uh, constraints, I can't speak to more variants of COVID or what that's going to do or do or not do. But BYD seemed to also suffer from shutdowns and still deliver a massive uh, amount of cars beating Tesla's Model Y and Model 3 in China. So that baffles me a little bit, and I'm curious to find out how that was able to happen. Uh, the whole industry, just so you know, like, is going to have a massive supply issue over time because we're transitioning from a fuel-based economy to a mineral-based economy. So that means that there's a whole new supply chain that has to be built to allow us to build these storage capacities, these semiconductors that are gonna fuel this new economy. And, you know, there's just, I've done the math, my firm Full Cycle has done the math on this, and even something as simple as copper, you know, if everything goes perfectly, we'll still uh, have a 20% um, uh, uh, differential between supply and demand in the next eight years. And that's one of the most simplest, most abundant minerals out there, but, we can't we can't transition as fast as we want to uh, without figuring out how to rejigger our supply chain and find new mineral capacity. Right. And that's uh, an even shorter term, though. Uh, we're dealing with energy security issues uh, in the EU. And I wonder whether or not it's not just a Tesla issue, uh, but to what degree manufacturing might be hindered if, in fact, Putin plays uh, the, some of the very powerful cards that he still has. Yeah, it's a very interesting time uh, to be an investor. The, the, this confluence of uh, 
of COVID, the war uh, in the Ukraine, the uh, the transition from a high carbon to a low carbon economy and how messy it's been and the different uh, ideological and political factors around, you know, some trying to keep it, uh, holding it back, others trying to drive it forward. It's a very, very interesting time, very puzzling. My firm, you know, focuses primarily in helping us transition as fast as possible to a low carbon economy. So we are uh, interested in being kind of the backbone of the uh of the global economy, but the low carbon version of the low carbon economy in the, for the next 30, 40 years. And that's what we focus on. So we've bumped into those headwinds all the time. And now is a very interesting moment for us. Yeah, well, lots of folks in that ecosystem are going to be watching these Tesla earnings after the bell. Ibrahim, thank you. Very good to have you. Watching Coinbase this morning as we keep our eye on crypto, stocks up pretty big, posting its risk management practices in a blog post and noting it no longer has any exposure to Celsius, Three Arrows or Voyager. 16% gain here back to 77. Stay with us. Well, the CHIPS Act is clearing its first hurdle in the Senate. We're watching the House side as well. What comes next and how long will companies like Intel and Micron have to wait? Our Elon Moy joins us with the latest. Hi, Elon. Well, hi, Carl. The text of this scaled-down package is still more than 1,000 pages long. But with 16 Republicans now backing the bill, Democrats feel confident this can get done before August recess. I want everyone to note the final margin of last night's vote, 64 to 34. That's a clear signal that after a lot of hard work and after a lot of compromise from both sides, the path is clear for this CHIPS Plus bill to reach final passage. Now, that CHIPS Plus package includes tighter restrictions on companies that would benefit. They can't use federal funding for stock buybacks or to pay out dividends. That's a measure sought by progressive like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Companies also have to notify the government of any material expansion of chip manufacturing capacity in China or other countries of concern. The compromise bill also authorizes $81 billion for the National Science Foundation and $11 billion for the Commerce Department to create regional technology hubs and foster innovation in distressed communities. But businesses lost the push for two key provisions, at least so far. It doesn't include a retroactive reinstatement of full R&D expensing and a 25% tax credits for fabs and tooling equipment doesn't cover chip design. That would have been a boost for companies like AMD and NVIDIA. The Senate still has to take another procedural vote on the bill this week. Final passage in the chamber is not expected until next week, but the House hopes to send it to the president's desk soon after that. Julia. Thanks, Elon. Notable how much has been stripped out of there. Appreciate that. Meanwhile, Bernstein upgrading Alibaba today as investors eye an end to Beijing's tech crackdown. More on that call and why a recovery might be harder than buyers expect. That's next. We're back in two. Chinese tech stocks have been battered in the last year, hit by the government cracking down on the sector and business writ large. And there could be more trouble brewing for China's tech companies and their workers. Our Eunice Yoon has that story. Investors wanting to jump back into Chinese tech stocks may want to look at these offices in Beijing's Silicon Valley. Many are empty. Regulatory crackdowns and a slowing economy combined have undercut China's tech sector. 
which traditionally has attracted and employed many young Chinese. This tech hub for China, known as Zhongguancun, is now shedding workers. Most companies won't confirm specifics, but Tencent and Baidu have acknowledged layoffs. Executives and former and current employees told CNBC other companies like Didi, Meituan and Kuaishou are downsizing too. Until a couple of weeks ago, video sharing giant Kuaishou had multiple offices in this building, including this one. You could even see the outline of its logo still etched on the wall. Today, zero. Kuaishou says the move is unrelated to job cuts. Didi and Meituan declined to comment. The trouble in China's tech sector is a big reason why youth unemployment is at an all-time high, above 19 percent. IT worker B.A. Pan says he survived two rounds of job cuts at his startup since the start of the year. No one is thinking about jumping to other places, he says. Everyone is putting up with their current job as long as they can because it's too hard to find a job. A recent survey by a local recruitment firm found that half of those looking for a job reported layoffs at their current company and 70 percent felt unsafe in their jobs. But companies themselves have been reluctant to discuss layoffs. The topic has become politically sensitive as the government tries to manage the job market and stabilize the economy despite COVID lockdowns. John? Great insight, Eunice. Thank you. Uh, information that's hard to get, but so relevant to investors, our Eunice Yoon. Um, and speaking of, let's get a gut check on Alibaba. Bernstein upgrading the stock to outperform this morning. They see the company's gross merchandise value staging a rebound. Hopefully they'll also see Eunice's report. Plus, they expect an anti-IPO to help Alibaba's valuation. That stock 50% off its highs for the year. We're back in a moment. to be an influencer at work? Well, Microsoft's new expansion for Teams might help you out. The company's announcing a launch of a new video sharing feature on Viva Engage, that's part of Teams, encouraging social networking in and out of the office. Employees will be able to share video and photo stories at no additional charge on a platform that looks pretty similar to Snapchat, Facebook, and Instagram. Julia, um, I'm old now, right? Gen X, that counts as Old, but I, I subscribe Gen X like to that Ghostbusters, you know, adage, don't cross the streams. I don't want to be that kind of an influencer at work. I think it seems like Microsoft might be trying to address the fact that we all, including myself, are known to check the likes of Twitter, maybe check Instagram occasionally at work. Maybe they just want to convert all that time over to their own platform. I don't think it's going to work. We already spend so much time toggling between messages uh, on Teams and emails, so many different ways to communicate right now. It's too much, Carl. I think it's just too much. Uh, the, uh, well, the hybrid work environment's definitely getting solidified. If you look at occupancy levels, there's a bunch of notes out today about REITs. Uh, maybe you're arguing that the allure of one big corporate headquarters makes sense, and that's helping some of the higher-end REITs in the B of A's argument today. Meanwhile, uh, close to session highs here, only 30 points away from uh, S&P 4K, something we haven't talked about for a while. Of course, we got Tesla tonight. Uh, we'll come in tomorrow, watch some central banks before snap tomorrow night. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 